0: Welcome to the Lowenstein Sandler podcast series. I'm Kevin Iredell, Chief Marketing Officer at Lowenstein Sandler. Before we begin, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast series at lowenstein.com slash podcast or find us on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Now let's take a listen.
1: Welcome to Don't Take No for an Answer. I'm your host, Linda Bennett, Chair of the Insurance Recovery Practice here at Lowenstein Sandler. And today I'm very pleased to have two special guests, friends and sometimes adversaries over the many years of practice. So I'd like to welcome Lauren Pierce, who is a partner with the law firm of Bressler, Amory & Ross. Welcome Lauren. Thank you, Linda, happy to be here. And my very dear friend, Mr. Tom Quinn, also a partner at uh, Wilson Elser.
2: Welcome Tom. Welcome Linda and Lauren, pleasure to be here.
1: Great. So today we're going to be talking about a topic that is near and dear to all of our hearts, the tripartite relationship. And I very cheekily titled this episode, Can't We All Just Get Along? So let me set the table for a minute or two, and then I'll uh, I'll throw some questions at my good friend, Lauren, who represents the insurance industry, and Mr. Tom Quinn, who uh, is typically in the role of defense counsel in these types of cases. So what is the tripartite relationship? Well, this is how uh, policyholders, insurers, and defense counsel approach a matter where the policyholder has been sued in a lawsuit. The insurance company has acknowledged an obligation to defend the case, but uh, there are questions. So Lauren will tell us all about uh, the need for her reservation of rights letters that I like to respond to. And Tom is going to talk to us about some of the prickly, difficult ethical dilemmas that can sometimes arise for defense counsel uh, when he's handling the underlying case, but those coverage issues may crop up along the way. And what we're striving to do in today's episode is to give our listeners some techniques about the ways that we can make that road a little less bumpy and less of a Gordian knot routine. So Lauren... Why don't you start us off by telling us why the insurance company wants to have control over the selection of defense counsel and defense strategy, while at the same time riding what I like to call the picket fence of reserving their rights?
3: Well, Linda, the insurance contract uh, entered into by the insurance company and the policy holder is what controls. And so the insurance contract, generally speaking, there they could be manuscript, but generally speaking, they say that the policyholder wants the insurance company to defend the policyholder when there's a lawsuit, get representation for the policyholder, and if the matter can be settled, to settle it or try it. The policyholder will often receive from the insurance company the reservation of rights letter that Linda just uh, mentioned. That is when the insurance company says to the policyholder, hey, we have your claim. This is what we understand the claim is about, the complaint. This is what the other side is seeking. and By the way, here's some things that you need to be aware of that are contained in the insurance contract between policyholder and company, insurance company, and we just all want to be on the same page, so read this letter, we'll give you a defense, but we want you to understand that it's not for everything, depending on what the claim is about, but as long as The carrier sets forth a clear and complete reservation of rights from the get-go. The parties should have a clear understanding of where they are going, and that is why the insurance company does that, because the policyholder does want the defense to go as smoothly as the carrier does.
1: So I appreciate that, Lauren, and and as usual, uh, representing your clients, you want to tell me all about my insurance contract. I will note for our listeners that there are certain circumstances, and we've talked about this on prior episodes, this is where state law matters. And if there is a a significant coverage dispute, notwithstanding what may be in the insurance contract, there are some uh, states that allow the insured to choose their own independent counsel because of that reservation of rights. Um, So I just want to note that. Now, Tom, in this circumstance where my client is sued in the lawsuit, we've sent it to Lauren's client. She's issued the reservation of rights letter saying, "Okay, we're ready to, uh, to defend this case while reserving our rights on indemnity. Give Tom Quinn a call and he's going to defend this case for you. Who's your client in that circumstance?
2: Since the time I've gotten out of law school, about a year before I got out of law school in New Jersey, New Jersey Supreme Court answered that question unequivocally. Um, (laughs) And that is it admitted for defense firms effectively. I mean, let's be realistic. You probably have two clients in a sense. I mean, this insurance company is sending you lots of cases. They call you on any number of issues. They're asking you questions unrelated to this case. It's hard to say that they're not a client in the firm. In fact, you, when you run your conflict check, they're a client of the firm. But your absolute or your paramount client in this, in this situation is definitely the person or entity uh, that you've been appointed to represent. And you always have to keep that in mind. You have to treat that person as if that person came to your door, you signed a retainer letter with them, they're paying you and they are who you represent. But particularly when there are coverage issues, you really have to be careful to make sure that you follow that rule of the road because that's what New Jersey says and that's what essentially every state says.
1: So while Lauren and I like to have our boxing gloves on and fight over things every now and again, what are some of the steps that you, Tom, take as a practical matter uh, to try to keep harmony between Lauren's client, my client, and the policyholder who the insurance company has used just described as sort of a mutual client for you? Like, what are some of the practical steps that you can take to keep harmony among all of us?
2: A couple of things, but I think it's really important out of the gate, especially, I mean, if coverage counsel is involved, it almost makes my job a little bit easier. I usually like to know who they are uh, and then go to that particular person and the, my client, the insurer, and just introduce myself, explain that I, I understand the rules of the road. I understand what I need to do ethically and legally, and just to make sure that we're on the same page. But even if coverage counsel is not involved, and I know that there's coverage issues out there that are serious, that I explain right away to my client, yes, I'm appointed by the insurance company, I'm paid by the insurance company, but I'm your lawyer. I owe you responsibilities. I I don't owe the responsibilities to the insurance company. I'm trying to do the best job for you under the circumstances. So I think you have to assure them of that. And then you have to be... I also like to be incredibly transparent, almost with any insured, but certainly with coverage issues. If I'm writing to the insurance company, I copy the insured. No one likes to think that I'm having a side conversation with the insurance company when there are coverage issues around. You've got to be, yeah, in today's world, the word transparent gets thrown around all the time, but it really is important to be transparent. And I do that by carbon copying and avoiding what appear to be secret communications. I think that's important. So,
1: Lauren, I want to throw it back to you for a minute because Tom was talking about written communications. We all know the pace of these cases. So after defense counsel has been appointed and an answer has been filed and discovery starting to take place, um, your clients like to receive written status reports. And I've had conversation with, with many people across the aisle on this. What's your view on defense counsel status reports. Who gets them and when should they get them?
3: defense counsel should be reporting to, in my practice, and I I believe Tom is on board with this, as well as uh, most coverage in defense counsel, the defense counsel reports should go to the carrier and to the policyholder, to his client when there is, particularly when there is potentially a coverage issue going to arise. As Tom pointed out, transparency is key, communication is key. The carriers do like to have regular reporting. Oftentimes the guidelines say every 30 days or when a significant event is occurring, when there's a big deposition, you know, they want to report right after. But it is best to report to both the carrier and the individual or person or entity to, to keep everyone on the same page, because once the communication lines close off for some reason, suspicion, whatever is is then right. And that's not the way to you go. You've got to have open lines and transparency.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things I want our listeners to really understand is that some of my clients don't understand that they're entitled to get it because the insurance company is the one in the first instance asking for it or has the process in place doesn't mean that the policyholder isn't entitled to get that and get it at the same time that the carrier is getting it. I mean, you know, I don't want to veer off too far into the weeds, but I think an interesting discussion is whether the policyholder should see it first before it goes to the insurance company. And that's something that we've bumped heads with uh, with uh, opposing counsel on in certain circumstances. Tom, you want to? Yeah, I mean, I, on that? I will
2: say the Tom Quinn rule and I, I can, you know, is that if I've got coverage counsel in a case where I know that the Certain facts are sensitive that both to coverage, and yet they're sensitive to the piece of litigation you're in. I drafted those reports, and I sent them to the coverage counsel first, okay, to send and you know review and edit, because to me, it takes me off the hook of inadvertently disclosing something confidential that I shouldn't. So I, I do it that way, and others do as well.
1: Yeah. So let me ask you this, though, Tom, because this is another classic that we see a lot of the time, and this is where your professional judgment may clash with the insurance dispute. So, you know, Lauren's sent her reservation of rights letter. We've got a 12 count complaint, one negligence count, and the rest are breach of contract, intentional conduct, fill in the blank, we'll just call it non-covered causes of action. And the line claims representative instructs Tom Quinn, all right, I want you to file a motion to dismiss on the negligence claim right now for A, B, and C reasons. What do you do with that?
2: On that one, I tend to resist a little bit because I, I, I loop in. Normally, it's not claims people who are deciding when to make motions. Almost every insurance company I deal with has a guideline and and they're looking for counsel's recommendation on motions, what the cost will be, and what to do about it. When I do these things, I realize that there's some coverage issues involved. Either I want to move on all counts or most counts, uh, if one of them is including the covered one, and I'm trying to get buy-in from my insured on that. I certainly don't do it on motion and dismiss basis. I'm in state court a lot. They don't work. Federal court could be different, but I'm generally not there either. And then summary judgment is, a, to me, is a different animal. But I try to, again, communication's the key on all of this. Got to talk to people. Don't yep. blindside them, um, because that's what everyone hates.
1: So, Lauren, let me ask you this question, you know, and, and we can all be our typical lawyer selves and say it depends on the facts. But when you've got a claim where, frankly, the majority of the claim is that non-covered Situation and the carrier has acknowledged defense obligation but is messaging pretty clearly that there's not going to be indemnity coverage available here. Does your client approach the control of the defense issue differently in that circumstance where the driver is uncovered or the client or the policyholder is underinsured? You know, you've got just a primary limit and that's it. Is there a different approach from your clients in that kind of a circumstance?
3: I will tell you, again, as you point out, you have to look at the facts, but there should not be a difference. There should be that the carrier gives out guidelines to defense counsel. Defense counsel's got to communicate, as Tom pointed out, very regularly and say, hey, I, I need to take these depositions on all these different issues and lay out the strategy. Most, if not every carrier I've ever worked with, they want to hear the strategy and they generally defer to counsel. If for some reason it's you know going down a path that's highly irregular, there'll be a conversation about it. But generally speaking, uh, the carriers understand that it's got to be controlled by defense counsel, and the guidelines are there to guide defense counsel. But if defense counsel needs depositions, defense counsel's got to communicate that to the carrier, and the carrier will confer if there's any issue. Uh, But communication, again, is the key. Uh, Keeping everyone on the same page and informed is the way to go. The only thing carriers really do not like is if a defense counsel does not communicate and then all of a sudden an invoice shows up with you know ten different depositions in you know a forty-five day period that the carrier had no idea was going to happen. And then the carrier's ticked off and says, well I'm not going to pay for all this. So as long as defense counsel communicates and the strategy is generally agreed upon as the case progresses, that's what keeps the the road less bumpy, shall we say.
1: So Tom what are some of the things that you do to not sacrifice the quality of the defense while living within the confines of those lit guidelines Lauren was just talking yeah, about?
2: I don't think that the, the lit guidelines end up being you know too much of an issue in the in the coverage world. I I think that it's more of a council problem than, than anything else. But there there will be times when, for example, you've you've got a serious coverage issue and where all of a sudden you're getting resistance from the claims person to say, when you would say, we need an expert on these subjects. And they're like, you know, I don't think that any of this is covered at the end of the day. And, you know, and I kind of do the, well, I, I'm just telling you, we need a defense expert. And, and you're going to call me and class. I say
1: the duty to defend is broader than the duty we're off to the races. But <laughs> I, I mean,
2: you can't do what you, what you have to remember. You, you know, it started with the same thing I, I started with, which is got to remember who your client is. You, you, the client is the person who is named in that pleading, and you've got to be doing, taking the steps necessary. I don't want to say, damn the cost, because obviously you would be sensitive to the cost if the client was paying you yourself, but you have to think of it the same way. If you would go to that client and say, we need an expert, I know it's going to cost $40,000, but here's why, because you have this type of an exposure, I do that without putting on my, you know, my coverage hat on and knowing where the, you know, the issues are. I just say, if it was your money, this was what you should do. Um, and then let the chips fall where they will. Uh, is generally how I try to do it. That's uh, great.
1: Yeah. All right, so we've got just a minute or two left here. So I'd really love for each of you, Lauren and Tom, to give me your one key to success of having the insurer, the policyholder, and defense counsel working together harmoniously to defend a claim, notwithstanding that there's a there's a coverage dispute brewing on the side.
3: Mine would be communication. And keep the lines open always.
2: Yeah, great. And, and from my perspective, when I'm defending someone, I, I, I'll go back to it. I, I think that the money that an insured pays uh, for personal counsel to be involved, you know, from a couple thousand foot level of writing letters and staying abreast of things, yes, that's costing money when you're, quote unquote, getting free defense from me already. But the money you spend there can be worth, you know, save you way more when the result goes south and no one was involved looking over the shoulder and all of a sudden you become surprised. Um, I I think it's it's helpful to have counsel in those settings, especially in bigger coverage disputes and bigger cases.
1: That's great. All right. Well, thank you both so much. This can be a tension-ridden process, but I think you've given some really great tips on how to tone down the temperature on the tensions and find a way to work cooperatively and collaboratively to defend these cases. Uh, Really appreciated having you here today, and we'll uh, love to have you back in a future episodes. Thank you both.
0: Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Please subscribe to our podcast series at lowensteincom slash podcasts, or find us on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Lowenstein Sandler podcast series is presented by Lowenstein Sandler and cannot be copied or rebroadcast without consent. The information provided is intended for a general audience and is not legal advice or a substitute for the advice of counsel. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. The content reflects the personal views and opinions of the participants. No attorney-client relationship is being created by this podcast and all rights are reserved.